Welcome to the Key and Mang audio experience where you're here from two up-and-coming therapists looking to enhance the lives of listeners by addressing health, wealth, lifestyle, and overall growth. Tune in to hear the latest lessons learned on the Key and Mang audio experience. Welcome back to the latest episode of the Key and Mang audio experience. I'm Key, joined by my co-host Mang. Mang, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, Key? I'm perfect. I'm great. Um, so today we have a special guest, my CI, um, physical therapist, powerlifting coach, professor, Eric Lagoy. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing good. What's up? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Um, I just want to start the podcast off with you just explaining or telling the audience with like how you guys started with PT and what got you interested. Sure. Uh, well, my name's um, Eric Lagoy. I'm a physical therapist for Gaylord Physical Therapy, Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. We're in Cheshire, Connecticut. I also coach for Resilient Training Lab, and I am adjunct faculty at Quinnipiac University. So that's all stuff that developed over the last like 10 years since I graduated. But to get into PD school, my background is actually in strength and conditioning exercise science. My bachelor's is in exercise science. And um, when I was an undergrad, I remember my dad, my brother and myself were some of the first people in our family to go to college. So my dad was real hard on us about like, what are you going to go to college to, to do? Like, what is your career going to be? He didn't want, like the last thing he wanted was for us to go to college and then get a degree and not have a job like in a related field. So I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm studying exercise science. I'm not hundred percent sure where that's going to lead me. And that conversation with my dad pushed me to get an internship to see, you know, a little bit more about the field. I ended up landing an internship in 2008 at what is now called Cressy Sport Performance. Um, so I primarily was coaching at this point. I was an undergrad. But while I was there, we used to have a physical therapist come in and he would work with, he'd do like some manual therapy with some of the athletes and he'd help out with some of the, you know, more on the rehab side of that. So I started watching the physical therapist there and with conversations with Eric Cressy, um, I started to rethink my plan and think that healthcare might be more suited for me as opposed to just coaching. So I went back to my dad and I said, dad, I, I know what I want to do, but I got to go to grad school now for three more years. And he was like, whatever, you're on your own. <laughs> so I went into PT school and uh, that's the short version of how I ended up in PT school. Like I come from the strength and conditioning background. Um, that's a large reason why I both coach and teach because I, I'm passionate about that sort of stuff um, and integrating that into, into our field. How was the, so when you, what was the field like, the strength conditioning field like when you first got it, like when you were first interning, what was it like? Man, we're going, we're going way back. I'm getting old for this stuff, you know, because a lot's changed. The PT field's changed. Strength and conditioning has changed a lot. Um, back then, strength and conditioning and exercise science, it was a little bit more, like one-on-one -on -one personal trainer, like the old school one-on-one -on -one personal trainer, semi-private wasn't really too much of a thing. That was um, Eric Cresty's model. Um, he built that somewhat off of uh, Mike Boyle's model. And then semi-private has kind of blown up since then. Um, so with semi-private started to get programming that was a little bit more individualized, maybe a little bit more sport specific. And one of the things that I saw Eric Cressy do was really build a niche within the uh, baseball world. So I started to see baseball players come of all different levels, you know, local high school kids that just wanted to be the best baseball player they could to, I was there in the summertime. So we used to have like 
guys that, you know, were minor league um, players or major league prospects come in in their off season and train with us. Um, so I started to get the idea of semi-private training being like a new model within strength and conditioning that seemed financially viable while still like pr providing a product that people, you know, enjoyed. Um, and then I started to realize that, you know, you didn't have to be a jack of all trades to be successful. You could kind of hone in on one area. And if you were really, really good at that area, you know, people would come to you. Um, and Eric also was probably an early adopter to stuff like newsletters. Like this is like early days of social media. This is before like Instagram and stuff. So, you know, I, that's how I met him. It was just um, reading internet articles and consuming some of his social media content. Um, and then I learned that he was a UConn grad, which is where I went to school, University of Connecticut. So I just like cold called him, emailed him and said, I was looking for an internship. Any, any advice for, you know, a fellow UConn um, student here. And he gave me some leads that didn't really pan out. So then he's like, you can apply for one of our internships. So I jumped at that. And then uh, that's what led me to that. So, and I feel like semi-private is probably, you know, still one of them where I'd like to gravitate towards, although I do enjoy these days, you have like remote coaching and there's so many different options and stuff out there. But, but back then, uh, remote coaching, social media, those were all like newer concepts back in the day. <laughs> how do you go about tying your background and strength and conditioning into like how you treat as a physical therapist? Yeah, that's a good question. When I was in PT school, even that, that's one of the things I think has slowly started to evolve because, you know, a lot of students and, and professionals with my sort of background will, will be pretty critical of the, of the physical therapy curriculums for not having enough strength and conditioning information in there. Um, but I do think it's very, very slowly evolving. And when I was in there, um, you know, my class, I think there was like one other student maybe with a background kind of similar to mine, like people that wanted to do strength and conditioning didn't really pursue physical therapy, they pursued other, other means. And most of the PT students from my class and that I, I met really didn't have like a lot of interest in, you know, exercising and, and coaching and the parameters associated with that. So when I was in PT school, we'd get like case studies where, you know, they'd say, great, create a, a program for what you would do with someone, you know, four months out from rotator cuff surgery. And I would do like this big, like <laughs> full, like periodized program or something. And, uh, you know, the, the, my professors kind of picked up on that being an area of interest for me. And I remember that being like a little bit off the beaten path, I guess. Um, so I've always tried to, to hold on to that. Cause I realized early on that that was sort of a skill that was a little bit more unique to me, like as a new grad, and I graduated in 2012, um, which actually kind of led me down a path of pursuing initially more of the non-exercise stuff. I, I kind of thought I had the Therax like in the bag with my background because nobody else had that. So I wanted to learn like all the, you know, kind of like the passive modalities and hands-on therapies and things like that early on in my career. Um, but then I always like would circle back around to the basic exercise and strength and conditioning principles. And, you know, maybe I can apply it to this person, but how can I apply it to this person? And these days, Key, you've seen it firsthand, like how I work with more of our geriatrics community. It's one of the stuff that I'm super passionate about and how I think that, you know, we can do a lot better as a profession with how we manage our plans with them and make sure we're not, you know, treating them like they're too fragile and underdosing them and, and understanding the literature on, on all the benefits of properly, you know, having them essentially work out, you know, so, and then pain is always the, the big 
thing that changes everything. So, you know, if somebody is in pain, that's going to change a lot of what we do, but we do have patients, whether they're post-op or, you know, low grade tendinopathies or deconditioned older people where pain may not be as big of a limiting factor for us and understanding those basic principles of SNC and, and even Therex, you know, really can make a big difference in how, how you handle being a therapist. Especially like just being able to modify and, and make modifications to whatever is causing the pain, let's say. And if you figure out different activity modifications that they can make to still get the task done, then it's it's still a win. But I had a yeah. question, I had a question based on you were saying like you were building these huge programs for someone four months out rotator cuff. Was it hard being one of the like one of the students who has a background in strength and conditioning and you know you're getting the therapy stuff in PT school and you're like, this is not what I expected. Like you're one of, you know, you have such a intense background in strength and conditioning, but what you're getting taught in PT school does not kind of correlate to what you're, what you have in your back. Yeah. By the time I got to that part of PT school, the way UConn was set up is like, we learned our basic, you know, fundamentals of, of physical therapy. Like you're, you know, how to read research, how to use a goniometer, how to do like basic medical screening. And then we went into acute care. Um, we learned all about your acute care um, content. And then we went on our acute care clinicals. It's structured a little different now, but, and then we went into our ortho where we learned more of the stuff that we're discussing. So by the time I got to ortho, like it had been a while since I had been coaching and in that world. And I was really like kind of in the medical world. So I was kind of struggling a little bit because there was so much more that I didn't realize I was like getting into when I, when I went into PT school, you know? So some of it was like, Oh my gosh, like I, I don't know what I'm like doing right now. I thought, you know, coming from Eric Cressy's facility and just watching some, some people work with some baseball players and I'm like sitting there in a hospital, like, you know, like what's going on right now. So uh, by that point I was kind of like a little bit uh, quieter in PT school for the most part, with the exception of a few professors that I felt comfortable, you know, having these conversations with. It was more when I went out on clinical, I remember distinctly, I, I went all the way to Atlanta to do a sports medicine internship there, a clinical rotation there. It was a great clinical. I had a great CI. We worked with a lot of high-level athletes, NFL players, you know, post-op player um, patients, things of that nature. And I remember specifically what comes to mind is we had a, a guy that was pretty far out ACL surgery, and he was um, hitting the leg press that we had in the clinic that I was at. And my CI had said that she was doing that for strengthening purposes. And I was watching him do it. And this was like a, a well-built athlete. And he just looked like it was like so easy. And I was like, I don't really know if that's like hard enough. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about strengthening, like when you're at the gym working out, kind of getting after it, you know? And then I asked him like in front of my CI, I was like, is this hard? And he's like, no, not really. But nobody had asked that question. So she's like, well, if you think you can make it harder, then go ahead. So we started making it harder. Um, and so those were like more of like the, the delicate, you know, CI student things that would happen. But I had a good CI that, again, maybe recognized my background and was willing to give me a little longer leash as a student to say, if this is what you think is best for the patient, then go for it. And I remember at the end of that clinical, she had said that she learned a little bit from me in terms of like reframing and rethinking you know, how she doses her patients and stuff like that. So, um, but I was uh, a little bit more apprehensive to speak up, I think back then than I am these days. <laughs> so you talked about 
um, like being in school and like going through the acute care stuff. Um, did you find it hard to like focus on that with your strength and conditioning background? I feel like with me with the acute care stuff, I'm just saying this is not really too intriguing to me. Um, kind of the PT school, as you guys know, was definitely more challenging than I think I anticipated coming from undergrad. And so I had to put the work in just to get the, to get the grades and stuff, you know? So I was just sort of like immersed in that world. And I guess I didn't really think about, you know, whether I really liked what I was doing. I was just like going through it, you know? And I think I knew at some point it would circle back around to what I initially signed up for. Um, I will say by my third year, I was having a little bit more trouble, like, you know, studying the stuff that I wasn't as interested in or as passionate in. And by my like final clinicals, I had like neuro and stuff like that. And it was a, it was a pretty light caseload where I was at. Um, so just to like fill some time, I would listen, I had a long drive. So I would listen to, to podcast at this point on my drive. And then I would like print like um, more like ortho related articles to read if we had downtime. Um, and so that's sort of how I got my fix, so to speak, you know, um, I still wanted to do a good job with what I was, what I was learning. And I tried to stay open-minded, even though like there was stuff I didn't necessarily think I was going to be interested in. I still try to like keep an open mind and I'm glad I did. Cause I, um, I have a pretty varied caseload where I treat now. And so I like to, to feel that, um, I can, work with anybody that presents through the door. No, my limitations like went, you know, I'm not an expert in this area. I get it, you know, so you should probably see, I'll help you find someone who, who would be better suited for you. But because our population is so varied where I work, um, you know, I'm glad I didn't necessarily like shut something down just because it wasn't ortho or sport, you know, but it was, there were some challenges in there, particularly later on in school when I was like getting closer to graduation and really had like a better idea that I was going to like circle back around to working in orthopedics and sports. Coming out of school, did you know that teaching was what you wanted to get into too? Or is that something that came around later? So my brother is a is a high school teacher. And I always like just with conversations with him, I've always said that if I wasn't a physical therapist, I'd probably would be a teacher. I don't know. I just have like a hunch that if I, you know, if I wasn't a PT, what, what would you do? What would you guys do if you weren't PTs? I always feel like I would probably like possibly be a teacher. I don't know why. Maybe it's because my brother's a teacher or what. Um, but I never expected to, I never like sought to, to become like adjunct faculty or anything like that. Um, the opportunity somewhat organically presented itself. Um, and then I just sort of jumped at it when I had the chance. Um, as I got further in out of school, like a couple of years under my belt, I started to realize that it, it may be a, like may come up at some point and I was going to, you know, be prepared for that moment. But I wasn't in school thinking I was going to like create this new elective that I teach right now and try to like reshape, you know, some of, some of what's going on in our profession or anything along those lines. Um, but I did have a hunch that like, I may enjoy teaching and then, you know, it sort of fostered from there over the years, the first few years of my career. Was it, uh... <laughs> Uh, zoom 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 um <clears throat> so with now that you're you talked about the elective that you were able to create what's yeah. the process of creating a graduate level course like for graduate students yeah I, I can only speak from my experience i don't know uh i i do know a little bit how it is somewhere else because i've helped some some colleagues of mine with classes that they've had to create but 
um, the first thing that I, I teach an elective. So it was a, it was a completely blank slate. And what I learned from my experience was the university spent a long time trying to find the right person to teach this, this class, you know? So they had it down to a few people and they had like meetings with like a hiring committee and everybody had to kind of like look over CVs, which is a fancy academic version of a resume. So I had to like figure out how to put a C. They were like, oh, send us your CV. I was like, sure. Google, like, what is a CV? <laughs> how do I make one now? <laughs> um, so I had to like do all that stuff. And luckily, some of the people that were on that committee I had uh, was working with, um, they were in sort of my position. So they were treating clinically, but still, but teaching um, part time. And now they're uh, both full time faculty professors, but I kind of had them, you know, um, putting in some good words for me, which was obviously super helpful. And I just so happened to have treated at one point the dean of the school as well, which wasn't, which kind of circled back around. So I had some, um, it helps to know people, I guess, a little bit. Um, so at the end of the day, they ended up giving me the job. And then that was it. It was like complete blank slate from there. Like we decided that you're the person, you're capable to teach a exercise driven strength and conditioning based elective. We believe you'll do a good job. They didn't like look over my shoulder every, every step of the way. Um, they mostly use student feedback from what I can tell to determine if I'm doing a good job or not. So I try to keep my students happy. Um, so then they give me good grades too. Um, that's one thing I didn't think matter when I was in PT school, you know, at the end of each class, you get those like things, you're like, whatever. So the last thing you want to do, uh, the universities actually use those, at least Quinnipiac does. And they, they compare you to the university as a whole. They compare you to, to the, um, the PT department. And if you like bomb a certain area, they expect you to improve on that in the future as well. So those are actually pretty important. If there are students listening to this, take them seriously, because they do help drive change, at least where I am. So it was a pretty big blank slate. So I just started slowly putting it together. And at this point, I was part of the clinical athlete community. So I had like like-minded clinicians that I was connecting with that I was able to like throw ideas out, you know, so everybody kind of pitched in. It was almost like a joint effort. Like here's articles on this topic. Here's my, you know, here's a rough draft of my syllabus. What does everybody think about this? This is the early days of clinical athlete. And um, I thought I had it, you know, perfect taught it year one. And then as I, as I taught it every year, I'm just like constantly trying to, to revamp it and update it. And we're probably on year like five, I'm going to guess now. And it probably looks somewhat similar, but also quite a bit different than it did on year one um, for a lot of different reasons. So, but I also know for one of my coworkers that taught a course, he sort of inherited an existing course that wasn't an elective it was part of the core curriculum and that was like a whole different thing because because it was part of the core curriculum he has to he has to teach certain aspects of the course um, and so he might come across something that he feels like it's a little outdated and he wants to teach it in a way that he thinks would be beneficial while still there's a lot more like dancing around you know what the university expects you to do versus what he might want to do. And I don't have as much of that given that I teach an elective. So I think it depends a little bit on what you're actually teaching. Can you give us a little bit more detail on what your course is about and kind of like what the students kind of get out of the course, like the experiences? Yeah. I know, I just want everybody else to kind yep. of hear it. 
my course um, is commonly referred to as a strength and conditioning elective, which is like a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, because <laughs> I like to think it's it's a little bit more than that. Yes, I, I teach the students how to squat and deadlift and we go to a gym and we practice that. And I have strength and conditioning coaches that help me, you know, teach the course well. But I really think the course is more than just strength and conditioning because we do touch on things like the biopsychosocial model and what to do with uh, when somebody's having pain in the clinic with a specific exercise or just in general. And we talk on topics like low back pain and tendinopathy. So I, I, I like to think I offer more than just a strength and conditioning elective. I like to think it's a therapeutic exercise course. And part of that is going to include strength and conditioning principles. So um, and my little rant there, <laughs> but the way the course is essentially, it's sort of the fell. I didn't go in with the plan to do it this way, but the way the course is kind of lined out, it's a full semester, um, elective. The first half of the course is probably more, uh, strength and conditioning driven, meaning that we're not having discussions too much on pain. Um, so that could include basic strength and conditioning concepts. Like how do you program for hypertrophy? Um, you know, we do stuff like what, what is good current evidence to handle something like osteoporosis. We go over, you know, a pediatric lecture on, um, youth sport injuries and, you know, what does good programming look like for those, um, kids. Uh, so we do a lot of stuff like that. So it's not very much pain focused. And then we have our midterm. And then the second half of the class is probably more diagnostically driven. So here's a lecture on tendinopathies and what current literature may say about that. Here's a lecture on low back pain, things like that. So um, that's roughly how I try to lay it out. You know, the first half being less pain focused and more fundamental strength and conditioning. And there's a pediatric and geriatric section so that we kind of cover across the lifespan. The university seems to like that line across the lifespan. Um, so that's why I, I like to do that. Uh, and then the second half being more like clinically driven, I suppose. Um, so that way, I think people will, no matter what setting they, they work in, I think that um, they can get something out of it. And anytime I put information into my, into my course, I always try to have it come back because I can't teach everything I, I, I would like to teach. Um, it would just be too much. So I try to think, how can I make these students better at treating like maybe a teenager that's three, four months out post-op ACL? Uh, so maybe pain's not as big of a driver there. It's more, you know, sport driven. So that's one case study that we like to focus on. I like to focus on um, an elderly person with um, osteoporosis and is at risk of falling. I like to focus on a middle-aged um, man that has sort of like persistent low back pain, arthritis on x-rays. What are you going to do? And I like to focus on like a active middle-aged woman that's having um, tendinopathy that's affecting her ability to like do exercise classes with her friends. So everything I teach, I try to make sure will improve their clinical skill as it relates to exercise for handling one of those four cases. And that helps me trim out like stuff that I would like to teach, but isn't pertinent to those four individuals. And I feel like if they can leave my class and feel more confident on prescribing exercises for those four individuals than I've done about as good as I can do with the time that I have with them. What would you say is, would you say that you've always been, cause it seems like you're like pretty chill, but you know what you want to get done with your, with your teaching style. Do you feel like you've always been this way or it's kind of something you've had to grow into and learn a little bit? Um, 
like when I actually kind of teach. Yeah. Uh, you ever like those, like not feeling as confident with what you're delivering or like feelings of imposter syndrome as you're trying to deliver material? Uh, imposter syndrome, I feel more in the clinic, I think, than the classroom. <laughs> you know, so I'm always second guessing myself because it's just just part of what makes you good, though, I think, because it makes you go back and make sure you know what you're talking about. Um, I, I haven't. I know a lot of people get really nervous with like public speaking and I've never gotten so nervous that it's affected my delivery. I suppose. Uh, I think I, I get nervous um, every, every semester when I go up and teach, it's the first, you know, I teach only in the fall. So there's a big gap from December to um, August where I'm not teaching. I do like little side con ed courses and presentations and things, but that first day I'm like, here we go again you know, the nerves are going and everything like that. But um, I suppose I get less nervous as time goes on. And I definitely used to get more nervous early in my career, but I've just done so much kind of presenting that I feel pretty comfortable in that space. And still we, and, and until we start cracking like 50 people, then I start to get nervous again, like the bigger auditoriums and, you know, mic getting mic'd up. I've only done that a few times, but uh, I've just, I don't know. I've just, uh, I've been, lucky that um speaking in front of people and teaching and communicating is something that i um i guess my personality is just sort of suited to it because i tend to have i just tend to be kind of mellow and chill um it's just enough nervousness to make me want to make sure i know my stuff the other thing with teaching that kind of falls into this conversation before teaching if i had to do like a an in-service like for school or like a one-hour guest lecture or something i would put the material together and i would literally practice it i would like practice the slides i would practice what i was going to say i would write down what i wanted to say when i went to teach my first year my course my class was uh, almost three hours long every week so i wasn't gonna like i couldn't practice two or three times a three-hour lecture i didn't have 10 hours a week so i would like put the slides together and then I would say, I guess I'm just gonna like hope this works, <laughs> you know? And sometimes I would teach and I'm like, nope, that didn't work. <laughs> and sometimes I would teach and be like, you need to talk more on that. So my move was my first year I would uh, treat in the clinic and then for the morning, and then I'd leave to the university, teach, and then I would leave the university and come back and teach um, and treat in the afternoon and the evening. So when I would leave the university, I would just like dictate to myself on my phone, like a voice memo, and I would just say, like walk into my car, what I thought went well and what I thought could be removed. And then what I thought, you know, I needed to add more of and what the students seem more engaged with. And I would do that every week. And then, you know, June, July, I start looking at my slides for the next year. I'd pull those up and I'd listen to them and that would really be my edits. And I just do that every year, you know? Um, and so teaching these longer lectures, it's forced me to kind of like not be overly prepared um be prepared like know your stuff but it really helped me like make sure my slides don't have too much information on them because i just see a picture i know what i want to say about it you know so i guess that part of the teaching experience was was unique because it was just a lot longer so now if i have to teach a con ed course for two days i i can just do it um partly because i've done it enough but also because i've had a lot of experience not being overly prepared when i talk even this is a good example of that like I asked Kiani for an outline. She sent me an outline of what we want to talk about today. I didn't like sit down and then write a bunch of stuff to like talk about. I'm just going to let the conversation go as it goes, you know. So I find that that makes it feel a little more natural anyways. 
How has your experience as a professor impacted the way you treat patients? It has been by far the best thing to improve my clinical skill. Um, I had my OCS. If you're interested in teaching, just as sidebar, uh, you can get an adjunct position. You need a DPT and they like to see something else like an OCS on there. So I already had my OCS when I officially applied to um, become the teacher for this elective. If you want a full-time faculty position, you can get one with something like an OCS and a DPT, but they typically like terminal degrees, which is like a PhD. Um, so if multiple people are applying and one has a PhD, they're probably going to get a little bit more of an upper hand. Um, so the reason why I thought of that with this question is because I remember for the OCS, the process of studying for the test is really why you're doing it. It's forcing, you have this big test. There's a lot of information to study for it. And the process of studying for that test starts to, you start to feel it sharpen your clinical skill because you're just memorizing things that you think might be on the test. After that, it's just letters, you know, just, just said you passed something. Um, so teaching kind of felt like that where uh, I would, you know, have to, in order to teach something, I just had to know it so well. And if I know it so well, when it would come up in the clinic, I just knew what to say. You know, um, the problem is that you think you know it well, then you learn out that you were actually a little wrong and then you got to relearn it. So um, it's not like you just know it so well, and then you're, you're done like learning, you know, how to play an instrument or something uh, where you just kind of learn a song and then you've mastered it and you can move on. It's always sort of evolving in that, in that sense. Um, but yeah, it's been probably the best thing. That's partly why I try to not shy away from the work of constantly updating the, the course because it's probably the number one thing that forces me to stay current within our profession at this point in my life. Um, you know, my life, I'm a lot busier than I was early on um, when I was a new grad. So keeping up on the research and things of that nature is a little bit more challenging for me than it was um, five or 10 years ago. But um, teaching um, helps me to do that because I do care a lot about the what I teach and I do want it to be as good as I can make it. So do you think that helps with when you have patients in the clinic and they're rehabbing an injury and they're coming towards the end and they want to stay with you for like training or trying to just get stronger, like having that relationship already built? Yeah, I almost think it helps the opposite of what you just said, because I'll get people that want to come to me as a physical therapist because they know I'm a strength and conditioning coach. So they're coming into the clinic and I may already know them um, or they may have requested to work with me um, because they know my background and right out the gate, you can just feel that the rapport is instantly different than when you're meeting someone that just called up and they, and I had the first available appointment. So that's why they got assigned to me. You know, you can just feel the weight of what you're saying, having a little bit, it's a little bit heavier, you know? Um, so it's, it's a, it's a nice caseload when it's a lot of people calling and wanting to see you. And, you know, they, you're, I heard you're the guy that helps power lifters or, you know, you're, you've helped my buddy get back to, you know, D one football or something like that. So, um, you know, you've already got that relationship established. They, they trust you. Um, you don't have to like sell yourself so much, I guess, right out the gate. Um, so I think it's, that's more where I noticed the bigger difference, you know, is, is those first meetings when, when, um, when someone has requested to work with me versus just, just, I, I would say probably like 30% of my caseload is direct access, like requested to see me. So it's something I come across, you know, daily. 
um, versus, you know, more challenging uh, scenarios where someone, you know, didn't necessarily request to see me and they just got paired with me for better or worse. <laughs> Can you discuss how you went about like building like your reputation and getting to the point where you're getting so many referrals coming yeah. in? Yeah. Yep. So when I first graduated, I, um, my first job, I wanted good mentorship. That was like my, my big thing. I didn't want to do, um, like a residency right out of school, mainly because I just wanted to start making some money. Um, but I did want to have like mentorship and continue to grow as a clinician. I knew that that was important. Um, so, um, my first couple years, I, that was my main thing. I, I worked under those, those individuals that I mentioned that were adjunct faculty and I was picking their brains every second I, I had on difficult cases. I was eating up all the in-services we had where I worked. I left that job and I worked in a smaller private practice. And one of the main reasons was that I wanted to learn a little bit more about the business side of what we do. Um, and when I was there, I definitely started to realize that that was a big part of the smaller private practice. And as the new clinician, my caseload was a little bit slower. So I started looking, you know, I knew I had this, this skill set um, with my background. So I started looking in the area for gyms um, that were, you know, within a reasonable distance from where I was treating and just basically cold calling the owners. And one of my first kind of questions I would ask them is how much revenue do you lose due to injury? And nobody knows that. You know, a lot of gym owners don't know that, um, but they do know that they have lots of people that go to the doctor and the doctor says you can't go to the gym for a month or two and then they freeze their account. Right. So revenue is being lost there. And I would basically say, I think my biggest thing that I can contribute to your business is that I can keep people in the gym. I can give them things that they can do, maybe things that they should avoid or not do. Um, and I mean, if you're a gym owner pff, sold, you know. And the next thing I would do is say, how about I come in on a Saturday morning or something um, and I'll just do some free screens or whatever. And the first time I did that, I didn't really expect much. And uh, I was in this gym where they had this, you know, kind of like group exercise. And they would say, oh, if you're at the end of the class, if you want, there's a phys doctor of physical therapy over there. You can ask them some questions. I thought like one or two people might poke in with like a little tendonitis or something. There was a line going out the door. People were coming to wild stuff. I was like, you got to go to the doctors, like, like the neurologist, like you got some crazy symptoms going on. So like that made me realize the need that was there because none of these people were going to the doctors and stuff. Um, and then the third thing that I think really sold it was I started training with the coaches. So they're like, yeah, we have, we have training after this, if you want to hang out. And then they saw me, a therapist kind of getting after it with them. And, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I had the internship with Cressy, which is sort of a big name in the strength and conditioning world too. So that had some pull, but those are probably the three things I feel like that really built, built up my name within the community where I work is just kind of like asking business owners, gym, gym owners, if they ever think about, you know, how much revenue they lose due to injury. And if there was an option to maybe work around that and then training with their staff and just building genuine relationships. I mean, these are people that, you know, were, have held like my, my kid when she was a baby and stuff like that. I used to bring her to the gym to work out with me and stuff. Um, and then, you know, doing some free screenings and things like that, that um, would pay off down the road because a lot of those people would come into the clinic and then then it kind of becomes like a self a self referral thing because you become that person and so as any time an injury comes up you got to see eric starts to 
be like the phrase, you know? So now when people come to see me, like, Oh, everybody said, I have to go see you, you know? So it's kind of, um, I do a little bit less of that, I guess these days, but I did that with a couple different gyms, um, over the first, you know, the, over the years. Did it ever feel like overwhelming or like, did it just see you, you just mentioned that the, at the, at the end of the session, like working with the, having the line out the door, like, was it hard to say no to all the people coming up to you? And like, as you start to get your reputation known or known out there? Yeah, it gets, it does get overwhelming. Um, one of the things that sometimes sort of like rubs me the wrong way a little bit is people will see maybe my caseload where like I work, not, not the people that I work with directly. They're all really awesome. I love my, my coworkers, but they'll kind of make it sound like I have like a fun caseload because it might be a little bit younger or more athletic or something like that. Um, but they don't realize how much work I do, you know, going that extra mile. So people will drive, you know, people aren't going to drive half an hour to come see me unless I provide something that, that, um, they see really valuable, you know? So, um, I'm like, everybody wants to work in sports, but nobody wants to, you know, go over their programming and learn about the intricacies of the sport that they're playing and email them or text them when they hit you up and do all these things. They just want to punch in and punch out. And it doesn't always work that way, you know? So like I, you know, I earned my caseload. I know I did, you know? Um, so sometimes when people kind of like, uh, will sort of allude to, you know, something like that, I'll, I'll get a little frustrated because I'm like, you could, I didn't do anything, you know, I didn't, I didn't like play pro basketball or something. And that's, and everybody knows who I am. Cause I played on the, you know, the Celtics. Um, so I just, uh, built, built everything up a little bit more organic than that. And the other part that gets overwhelming too, is when people call to request you and you're booked, you know, and they're emailing you, can you squeeze me in? And you're doing the scheduling thing and they, they want to see you. They're like, they will not see anybody else, you know? And um, that's something I wish I probably did maybe a little bit better. Um, if I had initially, I don't think I had a lot of coworkers like over the years that I would have trusted. And now where I am, I do feel like, like I have coworkers that I think can provide just as good of a care as I can. Um, and so I wish I did maybe a little bit better job of saying, Hey, you can't see me, but like this person that sits right next to me can help you out, you know? And if you're like, you know, I'm not running my own business or anything like that. I work for an outpatient hospital, but if I was a private practice owner, you know, we talk about scaling a business, I think making sure you don't pigeonhole yourself to be like the only person that can do what you do, you know, you need to be able to sell like kind of your brand. And this is, this person's a part of my team, you know, that you can trust them just like you would trust me. Um, I think that's like a good mentality to kind of have. And I think I was a little bit too much uh, like it's me or nobody, you know, initially. And part of that was because I just didn't have as many people that I, that I trusted, but yeah. I think now with social media and also just with all the resources that are out there, and like clinical athletes, it's a lot easier to have that mentality. Like you can't, you might not be able to see me, but I think you can benefit from seeing somebody else at this clinic because yeah. you know, like you guys are kind of in the same network and like ha kind of have the same like treatment philosophy. So you can trust them. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know say. if that was like years ago, if it, if it was like that, but I feel like now it's easier. To yeah. Like when I was doing the stuff that we're talking about, like when I first started going out to the gyms and everything, clinical athlete wasn't really a thing just yet. Um, clinical athlete was probably like 2015. Um, and I remember when the idea was first 
Quinn, who, you know, created clinical athlete first came up with it. He had, we had sort of known of each other through various strength and conditioning seminars where we'd go to them. And it's like, you know, we're the only ones that are a PT, like everybody else is a trainer and it's just me and him sort of thing. Um, Something like that. So he called me up with this concept saying like, would you be interested in this? And I'm like, I don't know if there's any clinicians out there like us, man. <laughs> I've never met one, <laughs> you know? And then he's like, no, there are, I'll find them. And um, sure enough, he created clinical athlete. And I think that's a, you know, clinical athlete level up. All those organizations um, have really leveraged social media to create this, this community that feels really, it's a, it's a small part of our full profession because there's just thousands and thousands of therapists, but it's nice to know that there are therapists that are in the same kind of school of thought at least or at least sort of speak the same language or if anything i can go out and have a beer with you know and like just have you know have a good time with even um because before that i definitely would sometimes feel a little bit of an outsider like i kind of talked about that in pt school i definitely felt a little bit like that you know as like a new grad um i would kind of always end up catering back towards the strength and conditioning when it came to con ed i always told myself you know take your pt courses for your con ed that you have to but then make sure you take your strength and conditioning courses make sure you network there like those are kind of your people you know um and i don't feel like that as much these days um and i think social media is a big part of that and then i think just like the interest in the profession like who is interested in going into pt school has sort of changed over the over the last 10 years or so. Yeah. Um, and that's something I was talking about with my coworker that he teaches at university of Hartford and he's just got this new class and he's got 35 UHart students. And he's like been surprised at how interested and excited they are for, you know, the course that he's teaching, which is sort of similar to mine. And I was just telling him, like, I think, think the, um, the PT profession is kind of drawing in a different personality essentially. And it's, it's kind of exciting because maybe I was an early adopter to it, I guess but I see students that remind me of myself a lot more than I used to like Yuki. <laughs> so yeah, it's cool. Um, speaking of the PT profession, where do you see it being in like five, 10 years from now, probably 10 years from now? I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, the insurance stuff's obviously a big issue. I think on the social media side of things, you see a lot of the cash one-on-one stuff being offered. I don't know if that's the solution to the problem, you know, on an individual level, I, I know that people can make good money, you know, doing a cash-based model. So I respect that, but on a larger scale, it just doesn't seem viable for the number of people that need our help. And maybe that's just because I work with a diverse community and I come from sort of a diverse background and I just want to help people, you know, and I enjoy helping active people that are motivated and enjoy working out. And I love the sports stuff and everything, but um, I also enjoy helping the people that kind of fall through the cracks a little bit, um, whether that's an older person or somebody that doesn't have good insurance or something like that. Um, So I, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I do get some concern sometimes with some of like what you see on social media with, you know, the cash boutique type stuff. Um, and again, I know that that's a great way to have a filling career and make good money without maybe having as much of a burnout issue. So I respect it for an individual, but I just uh, like to think a little bit larger than that when, when we talk about like our profession. So 
Um, I do think that, um, you know, one of the nice things about our profession is we can sort of be a jack of all trades. Like, you know, we can do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whether it looks like, you know, this may look like what a chiropractor does. This may look like what a strength coach does. You know, maybe we're talking a little bit about nutrition and wellness. Um, so I think we can cast a wide net um, and offer services that might not be like what you traditionally think of with PT. Um, what that will look like uh, from a business perspective, though, I don't know, you know, but that's probably what I'd like to see more of within the PT school um, is that type of information, I guess. I think it comes back to continuing to be curious and trying to solve problems. Like if you try and solve problems and ask questions, I think we'll continue to progress in the, in the right direction for the future. Yeah. Yeah. I got, There's, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that's one thing I've learned teaching too, is the, the younger, like what you guys are doing right now, the younger, um, newer grads and the students, they really do drive the change because these old professors get stuck in their, <laughs> they get real stuck in their ways. I don't blame them. They've been teaching the same thing for like 20 years. You think they're going to update it? That takes work, you know, and they got stuff to do. They're not going to do it. You know, they've been doing that. They've been researching the same stuff. They've been teaching the same thing. I don't want to say that they, like that they don't care about their job, but it is really hard to just like completely gut and rewrite your curriculum you know, and do it in a way that still passes the boards and blah, 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 blah. Um, so when the, when younger clinicians and students, you know, put pressure on the schools and the older um, clinicians and, you know, they kind of butt heads a little bit, but I think that that's healthy. Um, and I think that that's super important. And the reason why my elective exists is because the students that didn't get to take it said, you should be doing this. And they just said it enough times in a row where they're like, fine, we'll make it elective. And then the rule that they told me was you need six students to sign up or we're not going to run it. <clears throat> and the first year I had 16 and they capped it at 25. And every year since then, I've had 25. It's been maxed out. They have a waiting list for it. So they see the need for it. And now they want to figure out how to put it in the core curriculum. You know, so the students did it, though. Nothing wrong with a little chaos. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 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 uh, last question I got for you from our conversations today two to three takeaways that you want listeners to, to go away with oh geez um, that one I don't know that one's put me on the spot let me think here two to three takeaways um, I guess I would say my takeaways for anybody listening to this is to be as transparent as you can you know we, we talked a little bit about communication and Keanu I remember when we were in the clinic you would ask me you know, how do you like talk so naturally? And I think a lot of that comes about down to transparency. I'm not afraid to say, I don't know. Um, you know, I'll try to just work through things with people. Um, so transparency is a big part of it. I think another takeaway that I like, and I learned this from a clinician named Ben Cormick, but um, try to not think of yourself as like the cure-all star player. Think of yourself more as a coach. You're helping somebody navigate a scenario. Most of the time, it's going to be navigating a pain experience, but it could be navigating some other issue that's within our wheelhouse that's honestly pain-driven. So um, don't think of yourself as like the one that's going to solve all the problems, but think of yourself as an ally and an asset to the person that's in front of you. And I think if you do those two things, if you work within you know transparency, so don't be afraid to say no. I just I tell people all the time, I don't know, and I'd rather tell you that than to give you this big BS answer, you know. And people just nod their head and they respect it, you know. Um, and nobody's ever been like, 
This guy just said, he don't know. I want someone else. Like it's never happened. <laughs> you know, they respect that. You say, you don't know. And I think people kind of have a hunch sometimes when they go to the doctors and they tell them all this stuff, like, you know, some people are like, I don't, I don't know. Does that make sense to you? No, that doesn't make sense to me at all. <laughs> you know? So uh, transparency and then, you know, kind of being, I guess that would be humble, right? Be humble when, uh, you know, if you, if somebody has a success within rehab, I'm not like patting myself on the back saying I'm the best therapist ever. And the opposite is true too. If somebody doesn't have a good outcome, I don't necessarily get imposter syndrome or, or think that I'm like the worst therapist ever. I just try to, you know, stay steady in the middle. I love that. Um, Eric, can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media? Um, I'm mostly on Instagram. Uh, it, I try to do training and rehab stuff. Uh, I also do a lot of pictures of my kids and whatever I'm cooking or listening to. So it's, it's more personal probably than professional these days, just from my time constraints. But my, my handle is Eric underscore resilient. Um, and it's got all my contact information from there. People DM me if they want coaching information or if they're in the area and they want, um, you know, rehab services or anything along those lines. So um, that's probably the easiest spot to get a hold of me. All right, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Um, if everybody, does, if anybody does want coaching, definitely tap in with Eric. He's my coach. So, um, yep. Yeah, we got any games over here. But um, Eric, thanks for coming on the show. It was great having you. Um, may you have anything else you want to say? No, this was awesome. I, I, I had a, I had like the questions and everything. This was great, and I got just enough time to catch the second half of the Celtics. Right. <laughs> my phone's been blowing up the whole time so i just had to like flip it over because you know all the celtics fans that i'm friends with have been hitting me up i don't know when people are listening to this but it's game two with the heat so easter conference finals <laughs> and they did not look good in game one that's what i'm going to close on <laughs> series though seven game series that's right yeah <laughs> but all right next episode of the key and audio experience thank you for tuning in to another episode of the key and audio experience make sure to subscribe give us a five-star rating and review and we'll catch you in the next episode